2: Hello everybody, I'm Marcus Speller and welcome to the Barcelona Legacy podcast. This is the fourth of a six-part series to coincide with the release of the Barcelona Legacy, a book that explores how the evolution of today's game begins at Barcelona 25 years ago with the pioneering ideas of Johan Cruyff and was taken on by the likes of Louis van Gaal, Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola. It's written by one of our panellists, Jonathan Wilson, who writes for The Guardian, Sports Illustrated and World Soccer and it's out this month in hardback, ebook. An audio book. We're also joined today by Miguel Delaney, who is the chief football writer at The Independent. So, Jonathan, in this podcast series, we're going to be looking at six matches that define this footballing evolution from Christ Barcelona to Guardiola's Manchester City. This time, we're looking at the Champions League final in 2009 between Barcelona and Manchester United. It's an obvious one, Jonathan, but why have we looked at this fixture?
1: I think this was the first time we really realised just how good a coach Guardiola was. And I think it was the first time we really realised just how cry philosophy could be applied in the modern age. So four years on from the last one we did, um, so 2005 the football we're looking at was still it was we're still in that sort of post Greece, post year 2004 feeling of, of football's gone a bit more defensive, it's a bit more, a bit more stringent, it's a bit more physical. Reichard, who was the, the losing coach of Barcelona in, in that last game. Uh, he, he wins the Champions League in 2006, and that's really the foundations for this Barcelona. You then have Ferguson, Manchester United wins the Champions League in, in 2008, beating Chelsea in the final. And so this is the defending champions against this new Barcelona side they have been very fortunate to get by Chelsea in the semi final. And I think most of us, I think well, certainly all three of us, who are all at the game, I think we all expected United to win and within sort of quarter of an hour it was pretty obvious that wasn't going to happen <laughs> and actually you were watching something something pretty special
2: yeah i mean it's funny isn't it how uh, in football these kind of things sort of hinge on moments and of course in the semi final they were lucky well fortunate certainly or some might, some people described it as a disgrace didn't they <laughs> um, but less said about that the better perhaps but they were in the final and i remember thinking personally for me despite uh, chelsea's efforts this th- this was a match up between the, the two best sides in europe and You thought to yourself, Miguel, it's Ferguson's Manchester United, they're in a final, they know what they're doing. But as Jonathan said, was it 10 minutes, 12 minutes or something like that? When Barcelona scored after Manchester United's early running, it was all of them. And we just saw this Pep Guardiola team just suddenly take over the show. And that became
3: the way they played football. Yeah, this is it. And it feels like in that 10 minutes, this was the leap that the side made. Because I suppose one of the reasons why this match is so significant beyond obviously winning the champions League. It's not just that it's also had it just been a league and cup double in that first season, it would have been okay it's it's obviously been a good season for for Guardiola. He's taken over what was an ailing Barça and he's restored a competitiveness to them, but to actually do a treble it, it, that it, i mean that's the way had a kind of deeper symbolism to it um but as it was going into the game, I think maybe it's because of that Chelsea match and the nature of it, and i mean that that was a really fifty fifty game. Uh, they're quite lucky to get uh, the
1: decision. Or, well, <laughs> in some decisions, we, we, would we that... should say what happened that game. So, Chelsea yeah. would tell you they've denied four clear penalties. I think if you look back at it, they denied one and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, even then, it takes a, a brilliant last minute goal from Iniesta to win it. It's Iniesta!
2: Two minutes from time, and it's
1: heartbreaking! For Barcelona. On away goals. On away goals, yeah, yeah. It's certainly my thought was United will physically overpower Barca. In the final, as Chelsea had actually looked like physically overpowering them mm-hmm. in, the, in the semi.
3: It was kind of it was a, a slightly softer bar than two years later when they when they beat United. They, they, I mean, I suppose they were still weren't fully formed in that way by then, and there, there were some kind of like gaps in the lineup that maybe Guardiola actually rectified for that final.
1: Well, they also, I mean, let's, let's not forget they were without um, Dani Alves and yeah. Abidal through suspension. Well,
3: the like played. Yeah.
1: He did, but Sylvinho was centre half. wasn't he? Sylvinho played centre back, and Puyol played right back. Yeah, so. Mm. Yeah, so it
2: was makeshift is perhaps too strong a word. But I, well, I suppose in the context of it, it was.
1: Well, you certainly looked at the that, back line, that, that matchup between um, yeah you know, Puyol um, against... I mean, I, I think we thought that Ronaldo might drift out to the side as it turned out Rooney played on that flank. Mm. But the thought of Ronaldo running at Puyol, yeah. I'm not sure that's going to make you sleep easy if you're Barcelona <laughs> I, I think there was,
3: there was one moment early on when Ronaldo did exactly that, didn't they? And then United got a free kick out of
1: it. And, yeah, and he hit one of those low scudding yeah. free kicks and, and Valdez sort of slightly, um, he didn't take it cleanly. Looked yeah. a little bit nervy. And then, and then, you know, that first 10 minutes, it really looked like United yeah. would would do what we thought they'd do and physically impose themselves. Guardiola had had uh, created this montage of great Barca moments from that season, set it to, to the gladiator music. And... Um, because you know, it was in Rome, so I guess mm. it was a level of appropriateness, <laughs> but incredibly sort of mawkish. Yeah. And players, you, know, you talk to players now about... This, this was old, in the dressing
2: room before the game. Was,
1: yeah, they were so moved by this, they were, they were crying. And you wonder if almost were a bit too emotionally hyped up. Mm. Um, but then also there's a clever tactical switch that Barca started with Samueletta through the middle and Messi on the right. And after 10 minutes, they switched them over. Uh, so you've got Messi playing as a false nine. And almost immediately, Iniesta breaks down the right.
3: This is Iniesta, though. Oh, Etto has opened it up.
2: Now how about that for smash and grab? It's been all Manchester United,
3: but after nine minutes,
1: ball three for Etto, who turns inside, actually far too easily, and then a shot in the near post. Vassell ahead. And after that, they they barely lost the ball. Oh, he you never to look the back. ball. Never look Do
3: you think back. the switch was planned actually, or was something he reacted to? Because no, he, I, I think it was planned. Yeah, because he had played Messi there for the the,
2: the two against, right. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I'm I'm certain it was planned. Mm. And, and
2: and and in that game, you know, then Messi, uh, Iniesta, and Javi in particular, just had a lovely old time, quite frankly, and they took the game by the scruff of the neck, and that. You know the, the 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 words tiki-taka. Yeah, you know that's when uh, certainly in this country we
1: became a bit more aware of all that kind well, of. Well, I think stuff. we should explain that phrase as well, because Guardiola hates it. Right, right? Okay. Yes. So it, it's a word we used for that type of football, mm. but actually the the word, as it was used in Spanish, was, was an insult. It's Javier Clemente, the very sort of tough Sam Allardyce figure, was absolutely strong. It is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: he, what, he played six defenders in his ninety four team. But he, yeah, he was uh... Craig Levine. Maybe <laughs> I don't know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he was the the uh, coach of. Um, Athletic of yeah. uh, Bilbao uh, in the 80s had this big rivalry with with Barcelona and um that Athletic side were were renowned as as many Athletic sides were for playing quite direct quite physical football very british influenced um and he was very skeptical of the the you know pretty pretty passing of Barcelona so when he said tiki taka it was an insult and so that's why Guardiola reacts quite badly to it hmm. but i think you know the term is just used differently in in mm-hmm. britain to to spain which so is when we first kind of became aware of this yeah. thing we call tiki taka, mm-hmm. which he would call juego de posición. Of course, yeah.
3: <laughs> but, I mean, I suppose this, that Xavi and Yesta, the carousel, as Ferguson called it the year beforehand, we didn't quite have the same effect. But I think when we realised that something different was happening, and I suppose it's central to everything Guardiola does, was I think it was about ten minutes after the Eto goal in that game to give Barca the lead after one minute, and Yesta just cut through the middle and 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 set it open, and yester who was told actually. Not to shoot before that game because of his his leg muscle problems, but I think I remember the, the, I was in the overflow area because it was in a Sunday paper at the time, and we were quite high up in the stand. Remember, you you could clearly see from about twenty minutes on, Carrick kept turning to the United bench, kind of go, "What do I do?" Mm. Because he'd been he was being outmaneuvered; he had no he had nowhere to go. And I, I mean, I suppose the the, the roots of that or why that happened is maybe given Guardiola played as a player and the foundation of his of his philosophy is
2: yeah. And that's it, isn't it? When this Barcelona uh, under Pep Guardiola got in full flow, teams just... It was like they were playing a different game and and, and they kind of went on to create this kind of, I suppose, uh, global entity that is, is Barcelona now. But, of course, Guardiola... He's Barcelona through and through. Played there as a player under Cruyff was 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 pivotal in uh, in that dream team, uh, Jonathan. So you know when when fans sing, he's one of our own. I'm not sure if they do in Spain or not, <laughs> quite frankly. Uh, but
1: with him, it is absolutely oh, the well, case, absolutely true. And yet, in a sense, he's the second coming of Cruyff. That um, he's he's in the the youth team. Uh, Cruyff gives him a debut. He's hopeless. Cruyff says, "My grandmother's faster than you," and forgets about him for eighteen months. <laughs> He's then desperate for a central midfielder. Um, he, he's he's tried to sign Jan Jan Molby. Has been told he can't, um, and so you know, he he goes to the youth team to see what's there. And he's been told, of oh, this kid? He's brilliant. You know, he, he he's your man." And he's on the bench, and and so, so Cruyff says, to him, well, "Hang on, I want to see this kid. Why is he on the bench? Oh, he's too small." And Cryff went mad. He's, you know, nobody's ever too small in my team. It's about how technically good you are. He promotes Guardiola and within half a season he's a regular at the back of midfield and absolutely essential to how they play physically not not big not imposing, not quick but incredible tactical brain and has all the technical skills and becomes the sort of the um you know the the, 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 the motor of the team you know everything goes through him and and stays there uh, yeah, right through the 90s he's absolutely at the hub of the side. Leaves, but then the previous year, uh, it had come back in two thousand and six. Had taken on the the reserve side, had done very well there, and then gets the job ahead of Jose Mourinho after Rijkaard leaves. Um, It's fair to say Mourinho never got over that. I think it is fair to say. So (laughs) two thousand seven, eight, he came in for, and yeah, two thousand eight, he 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 gets the job, and two thousand eight, nine, he eventually has this brilliant season. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's remarkable. I mean,
2: Miguel, when we, when we talk about scholars of the game, Pep Guardiola is one of them, and more so. Learning so much under Cruyff and so on and so forth, uh, and developing ideas. It's it, 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 the,
3: the Inside the mind of Guardiola
2: is a, an intriguing thing.
3: Well, let I mean, in, in between, I suppose, his retirement as a player, and then when he went back to Barcelona, I mean, because of what Guardiola's done, it's almost you, you, you see this a lot with, with other coaches uh, who've just been players. And go, oh, he could be our Guardiola. We just just because they're former players, but I think what, what obviously elevates Guardiola is that he didn't just have these ideas inherent or that he that he kind of picked up for so long and you know and had been really ingrained in him. He, in between his time after playing and then going back to Barca, he went to basically went, went on a world tour of a a world educational tour of the game, and you know you know picked picked out people he admired, you know went to kind of go and study with them for a while. Or, I mean.
1: Well, it's fascinating, he, he went for, you know, he finished his career in Italy mm. and he goes to Mexico to play for a team called Dorados mm. under Juan Marleo, um sort of this slightly eccentric Spanish coach who has his very, these very progressive ideas. And basically, that, that's his education. You know, he not, he's not, hasn't gone to Mexico because he really wants to play in, in the Mexican league. <laughs> he's gone to learn under, under Leo. Yeah. And Leo's one of those coaches who I think is a great theorist, but okay, you know, struggled to put it into practice. And then before he starts the job, he, you know, he goes to South America and he, he visits uh, Ricardo Labalpe, who's another one of these you know, great South American coaches, great ideas, man. Results in the pitch not necessarily great. Speaks to um, uh, Cesar Luis Minotti, who, I mean, apart from winning the World Cup with, Barcelona, with, with <laughs> Argentina, didn't really do very much in his career and had a pretty miserable time as Barcelona coach. Mm-hmm. And then the great Marcelo Bielsa. And there's a story of him, um, you know, a seven hour barbecue at Bielsa's house outside <laughs> Rosario. Um, where Guardiola's poor assistant is sort of made to practice man marking with a chair <laughs> as they kind of discuss these theories and ideas. But uh, yeah, Guardiola has, has, has gone to these great theorists, but then the beauty of Guardiola does is he puts it into practice and it works. It's not a great theory. It's a great way to win football matches. Yeah,
2: but but they didn't get off to a brilliant start, though, in, in his first season, Miguel, <laughs> of course. Uh, and uh, obviously the way it panned out, I mean, it, it seemed to
3: be everything that... Um, Guardiola touched turn to goal. Yeah, but
2: it wasn't the case early on.
3: No, no, they didn't. It took them t- uh, three matches to win a game. It mm-hmm. re- was a competitive game. It was a long time for yeah, Barcelona. Yeah, exactly. I suppose there's even more to it than that because it's not just that he'd taken over. He'd taken over a side that looked like it looked like they were having another one of uh, what, what, what throughout Barcelona's history has been a periodic massive crisis. Mm. Uh, because you know it had been two years since they won the Champions League under under Rijkaard. Uh, they won that in 2006. Obviously, uh, it's 2008 and it just like everything about the club looked somehow. so it was amazing how quickly it unraveled from it was, all
1: there was a decadence there Yeah. and i think it begins actually immediately they win the champions league that their preparations for the um for the super cup uh you know the stories about Rijkaard hanging out with this this dutch pop group and you know <laughs> ronaldinho on the day of the game going off to do a photo shoot um so you know there's a lot of a lot of problems there with with personnel and the, the first thing Guardiola does when he gets there is say, right, I'm going to get rid of Ronaldinho, Deco and Eto'o. Hmm. I don't trust any of them. As it turned out, Eto'o persuaded him to give him you know, another season. But, you know, Guardiola was, was ruthless. And hmm. there's people who think, oh, you know, anybody could have won it with that group of yeah. players. Well, he actually selected a group of players yeah. by getting rid of the, the Deadwood, the people who were over the hill. Mm-hmm. And he promoted Busquets and Pedro, who he, he'd he had in the youth team. So but, he knew exactly what they were. I mean, Busquets is probably as close to a player yeah. as you would get to Guardiola. I'm not sure mentally he's quite as as sophisticated, quite as you know, I don't see, I think he sees the game, I say, quite as well as Guardiola did. But in terms of the style of player, mm. you look at him, you say physically, yeah, you know, what what is he? Why, why is that a good footballer? Yeah, you, know, you look at what he does on the pitch, it's quite hard to explain. But his positional sense, his ability to be in the right place at the right time, to play the simple pass to yeah. the right person at the right time, was absolutely critical to how Barcelona. He quickly play.
3: moves his feet as well. Yeah. I yeah, mean yeah. that's that's something I mean you've kind of heard about. In Guardiola's first season at City, actually, that he didn't quite have that, that pivot in the same way. And
1: well, and that was actually it was, it was speed of foot that was yeah. why he got mm-hmm. rid of Joe Hart. Even yeah, he yeah. needs his goalkeeper to do that. Uh, so anyway, so just yeah. like, on that on that disappointing start, you know they they lose one 0 to Numancia, having dominated the game, hit the woodwork twice. They then draw against Racing Santander. They lose Sant Andreu in the Copa de Catalunya. Okay, much changed team, but he's actually booed by like the fans who go to see this game on an artificial pitch in the north of Barcelona. Boo him. Mm-hmm. And is sort of in this panic because if he loses the next game against Racing Santander, he could be the first coach ever to take Barcelona to the bottom of La Liga. (laughs) And so he goes to see Johan Cruyff, his great mentor. Cruyff, who, who, I mean, has no official position at at, at the club, but he's sort of this this power behind the throne. He's the one who is pulling all the strings. Uh, He has a, a very influential column in El Periodico. And Cruyff... Says to Guardiola, no, keep going. This is fine. The results will come. And writes a column to say, this is the best Barcelona I've ever seen. This is one point two games and out of the coffee to Catalonia. This
3: remark, I'm, uh, I'm actually trying to think of a cultural analogy for what Cruyff was at that point. Alistair Campbell. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: the the, the well, spirit of the He's the spirit squeeze. Uh, yeah,
1: He's the power that, that makes everything happen, but has no. I mean. That was what Cruyff did. You know, he stopped being a coach age 49 mm. and remained the most powerful, football, <laughs> powerful person in football for another 20 years. Yeah. But,
2: it, but, the, but the endorsement of Guardiola oh,
1: was, was important, was, was,
2: was, well, important in, in the wider context, of course, as it proved to be, but also very important for
1: Guardiola himself. because Yeah, and, what, and actually it happened with, with the reserve team as well. Guardiola yeah. had some problems with, with discipline in the first couple of weeks and he went to see Cruyff and said, what do I do about this? And Cruyff said, get rid of them, bin them. Yeah. It doesn't matter who they are, bin them. It's, do, make sure you do it your way and he you know, he did that so i think cruyff was quite important in giving guardiola sort of self confidence and self belief yeah. it his way
3: even in terms of the mentality there was also the kind of the very tangible physical effects i mean I, I remember at the time that guardiola had some he had, had some rule about all the players would be a certain weight for their size and at least felt a lot of them were kind of almost 2 kilos overweight and it was at, at the same time almost kind of someone that's become you know a personification of all this was Messi who for three previous seasons I don't th- I don't think he got a single season without a long-term injury uh, until Guardiola got his hands on him gave him gave him a specific regime cut out certain things from his diet or instructed him to cut out certain things from a- his diet not that Messi always did that and then suddenly he Messi
1: himself enjoyed this explosion Well actually I think Messi did do that mm. under Guardiola. Yeah, yeah. I think he's gone back on the Sprite and the Milanesas. <laughs> um which maybe is why he's a you know, certainly the last World Cup why he looked a bit maybe. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, under Guardiola, I mean, yeah, Guardiola's tough, that's the other thing. Yeah. He's this great intellect, and this great theorist, but he's tough. He doesn't let players get away with anything. Mm-hmm. And that's that's also critical to it. And it's also, I think, why players, I think we, we saw that at Barcelona, we certainly saw that Bayern, players get a bit tired of him. Yeah. And I think actually, even as a player, there's an element of that, that Laurent Blanc said, um, it was almost like yeah, Sam's description of the of Nevel's. But he was always there, always <laughs> yabbering away. Busy. And he yeah. was just busy. Yeah, quite busy in the apt sense of a term. <laughs> yeah.
0: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
2: Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Um, but do you think that that he would have learnt that from Cruyff the managerial style you know you hear about uh, about other coaches you know have influenced almost the personality of their coaching you could argue maybe someone like Martin O'Neill and Brian Clough or something like that but a, perhaps a better example might be with with the way Guardiola approaches things that, that, that Cruyff did
1: yeah and I, I think you see elements both of Cruyff and less obviously Van Gaal that mm. uh, um, Guardiola's definitely his 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 formation in the game, both in terms of growing up at La Masia at Barcelona's academy, which was founded by Cruyff, so growing up in that style, getting you know, being having those principles instilled in him, his you know his whole education in the game is a Cruyffian education, and then playing under Cruyff and becoming Cruyff's sort of mouthpiece on the pitch. Of course, even you know, intellectually, philosophically, in terms of his belief that that position is the most important thing, you know, all of that he takes from Cruyff. But I think he also takes a lot from Van Gaal, and I think he himself has said that Van Gaal, in terms of direct influence, was the most influential coach he ever had. Mm.
2: And and with going back to the final itself, the way Barcelona set up and or, or the way they played throughout that season, I suppose how kind of traditionally Barcelona or Cruyffian was it then, uh, Miguel? You know, you, we saw a lot of pressing, we saw the, the attacking football, the three up front, all that kind of stuff. And it was almost a continuation of of
3: Reikard, mm. as we but, but, said, but taken on another level. I think. I mean, they, yes. They, I mean, this is it. It just felt like, basically it was the, it was the core Cruyff principles, but just significantly updated for the modern age. Uh, I mean, it's, it's worth I mean, in relation to what Jonathan was saying earlier about that era of football. That and, he, and he, I think even Ferguson's United represented this, given which was a departure from what they'd previously been. But this this is an area where an era when felt like defenses are back on top, where it was all about physical power was key you know as as Greece made clear in 2004 Italy to a certain extent 2006 and then even even United had got back to winning the Champions League through a very strong defense and counterattacking whereas su- suddenly here was a team that was just was willing to step forward in that way i remember i remember talking actually to some to uh, you know people who work in youth coaching after about a few years after this and that season which with Spain winning the 2008 or year 2008 and then but then really what Guardiola did, taking on from that, or sorry, I suppose it was, I mean, the two were connected, but Guardiola still took it on a level. He, he was, it, was, it, was, it was a different team, but with some of the same players. But, I mean, it's, it's something now that we probably take for granted. But at that time, the, the, the key skill for your defender still wasn't his ability to take the ball out of defence. Whereas Guardiola's, chance, and it's, it's permeated right through every single level of the game. I and mean, we, we see in how modern players are, are produced, but where the, the, the key requirement for a centre back now is comfort on the
1: ball. Mm. And yeah. a fullback has to be yeah. able to sort of get forward down the, down the line. Has yeah. to, he has to be able to cross the ball. And yeah, who, who was United's right back that day? John O'Shea. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the difference. I mean, okay, you can say the Bars had Piol, but ideally he'd have been in the centre and they'd had Danny Alves there. If you're contrasting Danny Alves to John O'Shea. They're they're, they're different types of player. Maybe yeah. it's a yeah, there's an orange in the room. We'll say the different types of player. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Sunderland fan, but yeah,
2: true <laughs> enough. Um, but it, but it's true, isn't it? And as Miguel said, that he took that kind of cropping stuff um, to the next level. And Barcelona, certainly Spain, but Barcelona almost became like the, the sort of unofficial home of football in the mm. next sort of few years. But that season, though, you, you can't understate how... Impactful it has been through football, through even to grassroots level. I mean, even to, to the, the kind of level of football that you know I, I I've played. You see, teams yeah. don't just lump it forward. Yeah. That that passing and so the influence has been utterly remarkable.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Mm. And, and yeah, you know, we've we've had the discussion recently about this Real Madrid winning uh, four of the last five Champions mm. Leagues. Are they a great team? And I think we both feel quite resistant mm. to that idea because they haven't changed the game. They, you know, they, they've been very efficient at the accumulation of silverware but this Barcelona changed how we saw the game. Mm-hmm. They, they, there's a this sort of scales from the eye, eyes moment. Yeah. I mean, but, yeah the, and I think it almost, I almost feel that happened to myself midway through that second half ago, I did not think this was possible. This is incredible. <laughs> a game yeah. of this level yeah. is not tight. It's not about not making a mistake. It's about just having the ball and the opposition cannot get off you. I think you saw United panic in this yeah. game. And the, the point Miguel was making about Carrick to the bench saying, what, what do we do? Because a team like Manchester United was not used to having 40%, 35% possession. That seemed an enormous humiliation. With Manchester United, we have the ball. Mm. And maybe maybe in certain games, we'll accept having 40%, 45%. But we're still basically in control. The idea that you couldn't get the ball, that, that was completely alien. Now, what's changed is we're now used to seeing 70-30 splits of possession. And we're actually pretty com- comfortable with it. Mm. And we don't necessarily think the team of 70% will, will win. But this was something unique. Yeah,
3: without dwelling on um, Mourinho again as well, but I think it pointed to a significant difference between Guardiola and Mourinho, and maybe and this, and this split in kind of the historical evolution of the game in in terms of you know Mourinho had become the the most prominent, probably best manager in the world through a certain style, which is almost which was based on ultimately safety first, security, and you know you know the physical protection. Uh, and to a certain degree, a lack of faith in technical ability, whereas Guardiola was a bit ultimate faith in, it, faith in technical ability. It was it was, it was trust, tru- you know, and uh, tr- trust and a kind of confidence in expression.
1: Yeah. I, and I'm that, facilitating that mm, through yeah. um, engendering in players an understanding of position on the pitch. So that when a man had the ball, he had minimum two passes in front of him and, and one pass behind him. So, you know, Guardiola's whole system, his whole Quega de Posicion, as he would call it. Yeah. The positional game, we might call it, <laughs> it. You know, he, he divides the pitch into twenty zones. But I mean it's not as simple as uh, four by five, you know, some of the zones are different sizes, but essentially it's twenty zones. And in a horizontal zone, no more yeah, you know, if if three are filled, that's too many. And in a in a vertical zone, if if four are filled, that's too many. And the idea is if you you know if you're not in a straight line, you're creating angles so the passing option is always there mm-hmm. and you should never have more than one player when you have a ball, you should never have more than one player in a zone at any one time. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. The, the, the oddity of all that actually is, I was thinking about this watching City this season and to a certain degree even, even Bayern Munich under Guardiola three years ago, even that 2009 final looks slightly... But it lacks, lacks sophistication compared yeah. to how he would develop the team in 2011 at Bayern and then with City. Well, it, was it was his first season, Michael. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. But, actually, but I suppose that's the point. Like, that, I mean, that, it is, yeah. that itself represented such a leap and yeah. that there was still more... Like, cause you, I remember like when you see Xavier and Yesta on the ball in that final, it, it, it was still relatively fixed. Mm. Whereas now with his kind of modern Bayern or City teams, it's, it always feels like one player has the ball in the centre. There's, like there's almost kind of this... F- four players around them at all times. Always, retain- they're always in motion. These kind of wheel- endlessly spinning wheels.
1: And I you know, think, think that, that point about lack of sophistication, comparative to yeah. now, is it's even more evident if you look at Spain in 2008. Mm. At the time, we were watching that, going, "This is this is an amazing team. I can't believe a team of this technical quality you know, is able." You know, coming straight after Greece, and yeah. winning the Euros and after Italy and winning the World Cup, there was something incredible about Spain. Look at them now, mm. and the football actually looks really basic, really yeah. ordinary and that's the extent to which Guardiola's ideas have permeated and, and have changed what we expect from top teams. Uh,
2: yeah, and one of the things this Barcelona side did in that season and obviously would go on to do quite naturally is is the pressing. And and it's interesting because Samuel Etu, of course nearly left, didn't he? And as you say managed to persuade him. Yeah, etu was one of those forwards who Absolutely, would press. It. Yeah, and, yeah. And and it, so it was remarkable to think that if to had left, you know, what would have happened and all that stuff? Yeah, I kind mean,
1: Guardiola's issue with Etto, I think, was less to do with a sort of a desire or, or a kind of willingness to work on the pitch. It's Eto, um was very critical of teammates. There was a player that season who, um, his wife had just had a child and the child was very ill. And so he was spending a lot of time in the hospital and often wasn't going to bed, was in the hospital overnight. And Etto was hammering him in training, kind of, what are you doing? You're not, you're not running. Well, the reason he wasn't running was because he... I haven't mm. slept for 36 hours. Mm. And Guardiola was, you know, he was happy this guy was turning up for training. And he, he kept saying to Edo, come on, like, I'll do the discipline, you do the playing. And Edo kept going at him. So that, that was why Guardiola and, and Eto'o, why well, there's a tension there. Um, it wasn't to do with style of play. It wasn't to do with application on the pitch. It was to do with the personality issue offered.
2: It. Sure. but But on the pitch... That pressing that Eto would lead from the front was crucial to that side, and that that Croatian principle. Yeah, and, as well. and you
1: know, we we think of Guardiola and we think of his football as being about possession, and mm. obviously to, an ex, to a large degree it is. But when he gave his you know, his his first seminar to the um, his European Coaching Convention, it was about getting the ball back. Yeah, because you can't have the ball mm. if you haven't got the ball. You've got to get the ball <laughs> to have the <laughs> yeah, ball. That's right. Yeah, and so yeah, th- that organised pressing to win the ball back, and this idea that. um you should, you should try and win the ball back within three seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the, the opponent is most vulnerable in that three seconds having won the ball back. Yes, yeah, so I win the ball off you, and I've exerted physical effort to, to get the ball, and my head's down because I've been winning the ball, and maybe players have moved since I last looked up. That's when I'm vulnerable. That's when you've got to get the ball back. And if you don't get the ball back in three seconds, then you sit off and you, you resume your, 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 your normal defensive shape. But instilling that three-second rule is very, very difficult. I mean, Peter Bosch, when he was at Ajax, made it a five-second rule. Guardiola's three seconds. It had to be that quick. So winning the ball back is absolutely crucial to, to his philosophy. Mm. And as you
2: said, Miguel Carrick and the boys that night certainly didn't manage to win the ball back very often. Uh, do you think that was because Manchester United, they didn't have the team or experience to deal with Guardiola? And I suppose in subsequent years against Guardiola sides... Very few people seems to seem to be able to deal with it at all because it's just such an effective way. It's it's you don't have a plan B; the plan A is so flipping good.
3: That was basically it was it was a new challenge that uh, that Ferguson and a lot of managers hadn't figured out, and it was actually interesting too. I remember actually after that final, there was this, and it it was particularly played up in the build up to the 2011 final, where Ferguson, some of the United players mentioned it, where Ferguson kind of said, "Oh, Ferguson knew what he did wrong in in that." uh, in that 2009 final, he was going to rectify it for 2011. He didn't really. I know, exactly, it felt like they played the same sort of way. Yeah, which was <laughs> remarkable, really. Well, you know,
1: I think. I think the mistake he made that he subsequently acknowledged was um, taking of Anderson at half time for Tevez. Yeah. So he basically you, you went to effectively a 4 2 4, but that just surrendered the midfield. Mm. But you know, you, you look at that midfield and you carrot Giggs Anderson, it's not that mobile. Mm. It's not really surprising that, that a, a deaf team could pass away around them. So. And I, I guess, I guess there's, there's two ways of playing against Barca. You either push right up, get in their faces and press them high up the pitch. Or you sit back and let them have a the ball. And the problem was, teams hadn't worked this out at that point. And so they, United were caught in this halfway house. And I think this went on for sort of two mm. or three years. Teams didn't work this out. that yeah. You had to do one or the other. And getting in their faces was incredibly risky because you risked leaving space behind you. But sitting back was incredibly risky because if they have 70% possession, they're going to have They'll eventually they get their moment. And like... You're hoping none of those fifteen shots fly in the top corner. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh but getting caught between the two stools, I think is what happened to United both in two thousand nine and two thousand eleven. Yeah, you, know, you, you there is no chance. But the one the one difference between
3: the two finals actually, in, in two thousand nine, I think United were just completely outmaneuvered. Whereas in twenty eleven they're both outmaneuvered and overpowered. Because remember at about sixty-five minutes in the twenty eleven final Tony Valencia was probably one of the one of the fittest players in in the Premier League, if, if not Europe. And I, he was trying to—I think it might have been—I can't remember exactly who it was—but basically trying to track a Barcelona player. He just fell into the back of them, it, and it was—you know—it was, you know, it was <laughs> it's such visible evidence of a player exhausted.
2: Yeah,
3: I mean, certainly Barcelona that night in Rome um,
2: were just so dominant, and and this was the Barcelona side. This was the. The team that we so many people around the world love this side because, as you say, Miguel, it was different from uh, the way Mourinho had done things. They attacked with flair; they were exciting to watch. They scored tons of goals and so on and so forth. It was never boring watching them, and yeah, I think yeah. I think a lot of people would set time aside to watch this side, which was, I suppose, would you say, Jonathan, that's part of the sort of the Cruyffian legacy to to make attractive, play attractive
1: football and entertain people. Well, that's certainly what Cruyff would say.
2: Um, <laughs> no doubt, he would say that. Yeah. I mean, or perhaps a byproduct of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it's a it's a useful byproduct, a useful okay. stick to beat opponents with when they don't play that way. Um But because it came almost like a right and wrong way of playing. Yeah. No. They, yeah. There's, there's definitely a sense that Cruyff introduced a a morals a moral sensitivity to football. Yes. A sense that the, we are we are the, the good people playing right way. We that's are we right. are progressive. This other way is. Is sort of reductive and negative. That quickly and and actually, to be fair to Cruyff, that was probably always true of his teams, which is why they lived on the edge so often. You know, although they won the four titles in a row, two of them won on the last day of the season in very fortuitous circumstances, um, and it's why they were so brittle and vulnerable. You know, as we discussed in the in the um, you know, in, in episode two, mm-hmm. um, Guardiola, I think they were a little bit cannier. Um, but they didn't really need to be cunning because it was just so much better. Yeah. Mm. Um, but I mean, looking back at Cruyff, the player, if you think of a '73 European Cup final when they just held the ball, they took they took the lead after four minutes against Juventus and passed the ball around, Juventus couldn't get it back. So <laughs> yeah. That was sort of the sterile possession that that Spain maybe would, were guilty of in 2010. So it's it's a very it's a fine line. But I think you can say of, of Cruyff's teams, and perhaps for slightly different reason, Guardiola's teams, there was always that impetus. To there was we, never that sort of. That, uh, that negativity, that stability.
3: On that though, actually, I was um, just before the Champions League final this year in, in Kiev, we were we all the talk about Real's three in a row. I was looking back to uh, previous three, threes in a row and an interview with Johnny Rep about that final against Juventus. And he, he kind of starts going on. He, we always felt the criticism was very unfair because the problem with that with that final was basically just, it was so easy for us. It, it was just such an easy game. That even, even at 1-0, they, they knew that there was nothing... But event. There, was, there was an
1: element of making a point as well. The, yeah, the yeah. events were famous for sort of their the cat nacho, for hmm. very defensive football. And 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 um, Ajax basically went, OK, get the ball, come out. Oh, you're yeah. not going to? All right, we'll <laughs> just pass it around then. And I mean, it was rep who got the goal, wasn't it, Yeah, After four minutes? Yeah.
3: Actually, even in terms, of that, in terms of the second goal in that game, which was probably Messi's real elevation into what... what I mean, because I mean, I it was... I suppose as we discussed earlier, everyone knew Messi's talent, but because he'd been so so injured for so long in his previous three years. I mean Ronaldo had just been, you know, Ballon d'Or winner. There was still a sense that Messi was discovering his his true level. Whereas that was probably a leap. And it was there was a bit of historical symbolism a parallel there too. Because he got a header in that get in that mm. game, which something he'd been criticised for. And that was the exact same as 72, which is probably that Ajax's team's peak moment. And, and Cruyff's peak as a player, in which he also got a header, a, a, a quality he'd been, or a lack of quality he'd been criticised for.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that Messi header, it's an incredible header as yeah, well. yeah, It's a great cross from Xavi.
2: It's 2-0. It's Messi.
3: He's scored against an English club now. It's Manchester United. And a crucial, crucial time with 20 minutes to go.
1: But it, it's a proper sort of English number nine header. Yeah. It's so powerful, his boot falls off. The, 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 the yeah. sort of shock wave through his muscles makes his boot fall yeah. off. Yeah, and um, that was twenty minutes to go. And I mean, that even if he hadn't the... scored it, we knew the game was yeah, over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that yeah. was absolutely rubber stamped.
3: Well, that, that, yeah, that, even even by that point, and as you said, United, United went to 4-2-4 but they just couldn't get into the game. They couldn't get it to their forwards at all. I think Ronaldo was doing his typical kind you know gesticulating everywhere I had because he was so frustrated. Mm. One of the most dominant performances in a, in a
1: Champions League final, certainly, and actually uh, not as dominant as 2011. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But was... I mean, I remember we 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 left the ground together in mm. Rome. We had a walk for I don't know about an hour and a half looking for a taxi, and I I just remember kind of that ninety minute walk. Yeah. Kind of basically the entire conversation was, "God, they were good. Yeah. Like, how good was that? Yeah. Thought, what what have we just seen?
2: Yeah. Well, I I was uh, I actually my friend and I we we organised to get home on with sort of Manchester United fans even though we were neutrals and we got on the bus and we and we looked round at them all and went God that, that was quite so- oh yeah you're still upset about that yeah sorry
3: about that <laughs> there, there, there was a lingering thing though basically until 2011 that that final might have been a bit of a freak do you remember all that discussion for two years like, oh Spain's an easy league you know they can't defend probably they're vulnerable until basically 2011 really hammered the point. Still
1: saying that now, they've won nine of last ten. You've been <laughs> in, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. We're, st- we're still not convinced,
3: still not convinced <laughs> but we're co- convinced of Cruyff's legacy, certainly.
2: Um, so uh, we'll, we'll leave it there. But thank you very much for listening, everybody. That was the fourth uh, of a six-part series to coincide with the, le- the release of the Barcelona Legacy, a book that explores how the evolution of today's game begins at Barcelona 25 years ago with the pioneering ideas of Johan Cruyff and was taken on by the likes of Louis van Gaal, Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola, of course, written by our panellist Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan, thank you for joining us once again. And Miguel Delaney, of course, uh, the Chief Football Writer at The Independent. Thank you, Miguel. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time.